Good evening, and welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group, Thursday Night Alcoholics and God, Speaker Step Series. Uh, we have Tom coming up to do our joke tonight. So welcome up, Tom. Tom W., friend of Bill W., alcoholic. How we doing? Okay, so a girl... <clears throat> Working with her sponsor, asked, where can I read about my sex problems? The sponsor said, well, that's covered on page 69 in the big book. Later at home, the page number got jumbled as she tried to remember, and she ended up turning to page 96 to figure out where to read about her sex problems. And there it read, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. <laughs> Thank you. I am a covered alcoholic. My name is Alex. Thank you for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start a two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Turn off all devices that make noise that might or will distract others. Take this time to connect, get connected to God, let the craziness of the day drift away, and ask God to help you stay focused on step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's get started. Be, uh, 
Now we're going to have our fog light prayer. Um, it's not up here, but if you don't know it, just uh, mumble on. <coughs> God, like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Amen. There is a solution. From the big book, page 17, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Scott to read Appendix 2 of Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Alex. Spiritual experience. My name is Scott. I'm a recovered alcoholic. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. It was not our intention to create such an impression. Many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realized that he had undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished in years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unexpected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness Honesty and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle, which is the bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. All right. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up, sitting back down. Uh, this is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane mode or just turn them off. Um, tonight we have Tom coming up to do his third session. Um, thus far, it's, it's been nothing short of amazing, and I've been genuinely excited to hear him speak every night he's come. So please welcome Tom.
name's Tom. I'm an alcoholic. I'm sober by the mercy of God. Stay sober by the grace of God. And I was taught that by a man named Dennis Organ. He's long dead now. And he always made the sign of the cross. You know. <clears throat> but now I've got to tell a joke, okay, because, you know, I wasn't really happy with that joke, you know. <laughs> Just like last week, I wasn't very happy with that joke either. You know? I guess I think my own jokes are the only ones that are funny. <clears throat> I tend to laugh at myself more than anybody else does. And this is about faith, so I should tell a joke about faith, you know. These things bug the hell out of me. I don't like them, you know. And I like those big, sturdy uh, lecterns, you know, because I'm lazy, you know, and I, I like to lean against them, you know. I'm getting old now. So this drunk, see, this is what I'm talking about. You mind if I turn this off, you know, because I don't really need it. I'm sure the people in the back can hear me. Do I need this? This, this one on my ear is all we need, right? <clears throat> so this drunk is walking along the cliff, and he's drunk as could be. You know, he's stumbling around all over the place, and he trips, and he falls off the side of the cliff, and he's going straight down, and there, there's, I mean, it's a sheer cliff. There's nothing there except for one branch. That's sticking out about halfway down. And he just happens to reach out and grab hold of that branch. And he stand, he's hanging on to that branch with, for life. And he can't see any way down. And he can't see any way up. And he looks up in the heavens and he says, If there's somebody up there, will you help me? And a voice comes down from above and says, I'll help you. And he says, you will? And the voice says, yeah, let go of the branch. And the drunk looks up, you know, and he says, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> so, you know, that's basically my story, you know. I mean, I, 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 I wasn't looking for, uh, for God to help me. Because I had a God as I misunderstood him. Not as I understood him. Because of the the God that I grew up with. I guess I just got uh, the wrong message, you know, as a kid uh, about this God. You know, I was raised in Catholic school my whole life, from kindergarten through the 12th grade except for two years of junior high. I always ask God to help me tell the truth, you know, so I got to tell the truth. I can't, I just can't lie standing up here, you know. And the truth is, uh, I didn't get along uh, very well in Catholic school. I didn't get along very well uh, with other children. That's the truth about me. You know, I uh, I didn't play well with other other kids. I I never uh, wanted to be like I talked about before who I was, or where I was, or what I was doing. 
I always wanted to be somebody else, be someplace else and doing something else. I was always restless, irritable, and discontent. I can't ever remember a time when I felt comfortable until I found a bottle of wine in the woods at 13 and drank it down, and then I was comfortable. And so, you know, the thing about, about me and I, you know, I'll talk about this more next week when we talk on the fourth step. I learned something about me in my fourth step. I learned a lot about me. But I think I learned a lot about what my problem was with God. You know, and, and if I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to talk to you about God, because that's what I'm going to talk about, you see, I, I believe that I'm here because God's got me here. And I believe that the reason God has me here is to bring you to God. You know, I like, I don't, uh, I don't like to read a lot. But I like to mention a few things, you know. And uh, one of the things I like to mention in the big book is it's, in, it's uh, on page 45 in We Agnostics. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Obviously, but where and how were we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. That means we have written a book in which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course, that we're going to talk about God. So we're going to talk about God. You know, and I know, like me, there's people sitting in this room that got a problem with God. I had a problem with God, a big problem. Now, I didn't know that uh, when I came here what that problem was. Uh, you know, it took work in Alcoholics Anonymous for me to come to understand just exactly what was that problem. And then I, I heard a man in a meeting one night describe himself when he came to Alcoholics Anonymous as a God-hater. And when I heard him say that, I knew that that's who I was. I was a God-hater. It's not that I didn't believe in God. It's not that I was an atheist, like my old mentor who never saw me get sober you know, I, I used to hang around the 101 Club. His name was Tex. He was from New Jersey, and they called him Tex. <laughs> you can see the reason why I liked him, okay, because he wore all cowboy clothes, even though he was from New Jersey, <laughs> the big flowers and everything. He used to say, uh, my name used to be Ace, but now I'm sober, so you can't call me Ace anymore. You've got to call me Tex now. And I loved him because he did time in San Quentin and Folsom. He used to ride the rails. He was a skid row wino. He was a great guy. And uh, 
he, he, uh, he tried to help me all the time, you know, and, and I just never wanted his help. I, I didn't want anything to do with him, you know, and uh, he loved me anyway. He loved me anyway. See, I didn't think God loved me. That's what I thought the problem was. Because I really didn't understand anything about love. All I really understood, you know, is whether I was worthy or unworthy. That's kind of, you know, was drummed into me. You know, and I'm not going to stand up here, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to blame anybody. You won't hear me say that uh, I'm a recovered Catholic, a recovering Catholic. You won't hear me say that. You know, and, and because I was taught, taught by a lot of things that are right here in this book. You know, things like the main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. Atheists that I know in AA, that's all they believe in. They take, you know, God out of their program, and they just replace the word God with spiritual principles. And if that's what they need to call their God, spiritual principles, I'm fine with that. Tex, he thought a little bit different. You know, he told me, he said he went to the atheist funeral, looked down this casket, and the guy was all dressed up. And he said, poor guy, all dressed up, no place to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> one of the... <laughs> he, was, he was a joker, okay? <laughs> I love jokers, you know, I'm a big Rule 62 guy, you know. Let's not take ourselves too serious here, you know. Especially when it comes to God. You know, I don't want to take myself too serious because I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that God didn't take me too serious. You know, because like an old friend of mine who's long gone now too, who was a smuggler and did time in the federal penitentiary, who was married to a Colombian girl who can never come back to the U.S. again, because they were in it together. Joe Holland was his name. And Joe, and identified with him the first time he said this. He said, you know, I didn't get justice, Tom. I got mercy. Because that's what I got. I didn't get justice. I got mercy. There was a lot that I didn't have to pay for. Believe me. A whole lot that I didn't have to pay for. And Dennis Organ, he said that, he didn't say that for no reason at all. He was a second generation Chicago mobster, a mafia guy. But he was one of the most God-like men that I ever knew in my whole life. He was the one that said to me, you think you're a tough guy? I said, I can handle myself. And he said, I'll tell you who a tough guy was. Jesus Christ was a tough guy. He took whatever they threw at him, and he loved them anyway. Loved them anyway. Are you tough enough for that? Man, you're asking an awful lot out of me. 
You're asking me to not hate people? To not be angry at people? To forgive people? That's not what I'm about. I was never about that. I was about, I'll get even with you. I'll punish you. I'll hurt you. That's why I didn't play well with other children. You know, it didn't bother me a bit to hurt you. And for a long time, you know, one of the reasons he and I got along so well was because of that. Because that's what I used to do. I used to hurt people. I mean physically hurt people. I didn't become the union leader that I became because I was a nice guy. It was because I come up underneath those wise guys. It's just a good thing that I was sober five years before I took office running this union. Or otherwise, I'd have been in the penitentiary. Just like two guys I know was the only reason that I got there, because I'm Irish and not Italian. But like a guy, an Italian guy named Luigi Reale once said, Tommy knows where all the bodies are buried. I say, don't say that. Please, just don't say that. So Dennis, he took me through the first three steps. And he asked me uh, one morning, he said, have you ever taken the third step formally? And, and, you know, I'd been reading the book and everything and reading the 12 and 12, and I, didn't, I hadn't seen anything in there about an instruction of taking the, first, the third step formally. What's that supposed to mean, right? And I said, well, I guess not. I, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, get down on your knees with another man and say the third step prayer. And, you know, I'm not really too crazy about getting on my knees and so, holding some other man's hand that's on his knees with me, you know. Especially not after the men's meeting at the Central House, you know on Sunday morning after everybody leaves and I'm on my knees with this old man holding his hand and we're taking turns saying the third step prayer and I keep looking at the door to make sure nobody walks in and sees me. Because, you know, like I'm very fond of saying, I don't know who you think about all day, but I know who I think about. I think about me. I wake up in the morning thinking about me, and I go to bed at night thinking about me, and the only time I think about you is how it relates to me. I'm glad that after 38 years, it's not like that. But that's only come through a lot of practice. You're getting on my knees every morning like I was taught by him, because he's the one that taught me to pray. He's the one that stood in the doorway of the central house after 10 years of being around AA, and never getting a year. And the periods of time that I could spend out there, they got shorter because I went to the bottom faster. And the periods of time that I could spend in the rooms of AA, they got shorter too because you can't stand to be around here. And, you know, you know, you, you know you're not doing what's right. You know you're not doing what the other people are doing. You're doing what you want to do. You're believing what you want to believe. And he asked me to pray. And I said, I don't see how that's going to do any good. 
And he said, how's your way been working, wise guy? Your way been working for you? What are you going to say after 10 years and never been able to stay sober? Yeah, my way's working great. Oh, you're not going to say that. You're not going to say that unless you're so mentally ill, you know, you don't even know your name anymore. And all you can say is, yeah, I guess you're right. And the man looks at you and says, yeah, well, I guess what you believe in doesn't work then, does it? Because what you believe in hasn't kept you sober. But I'm not asking you to believe. It's not about what you're willing to believe. It's about what are you willing to do. And that's what this third step is about. It's about willingness. What are you willing to do? Are you just, are you just willing to get on your knees and ask God for the strength to stay clean and sober today? And you, don't have to, you don't have to say prayers asking God for all kinds of things. Because he's God and you're not. He doesn't need you to tell him or it or her, whatever, what you need. Because you're not capable of that. You're only capable of knowing what you want. You think you know what you need, he told me. That's your problem. That's what your problem's been all these years with your sobriety. If you think you know what you need. But you don't know what you need. You're not capable of knowing what you need. I'm not capable of that. I'm only capable of knowing what I want, even still today. 38 years sober. I'm not capable of knowing what I need. I'm capable of knowing what I want. And my wants and my needs are two completely different things. They're not the same at all. Because every time I've ever gone after everything I wanted, everything I thought that I needed in my life, how'd your way work, wise guy? Every time it comes to a bad end, it's always, how's your way work, wise? I can hear his voice saying that to me. How'd your way work? How'd it work out for you, you know? How'd it work out for you after, you know, let me explain something to you. If you don't know where I come from, I'll, I'll tell you where I come from. I come from a life of crime, okay? Not only an alcoholic and a drug addict, but a criminal through all kinds of ways, whatever the way was that needed to be done would do it. If they told me to send you a message, I would write your name on a block and wait for you, and I'd be up 20 stories and wait for you to come underneath and drop that block where it had land in the sand right in front of you. And you'd get the message. Most guys would. And if it took more than that, it'll take more than that. And that was what we were about. We were about shakedown. Shaking people down. Making them pay. So, after five years sober, 
I got into office because, you know, the, the other guys got put in prison. That's how I got in there, and I helped to clean the thing up. I was sober now. I gave my guys the first secret ballot election they'd had in 30 years. When the wise guys ran it, the old man, Papa Joe Giardella, he would call you up to the podium, and he'd stick that ballot in front of you one at a time, and he'd point. And you better mark where he showed you to mark, or you'd sit on that bench. Well, I don't want to say in a, in a mixed uh, meeting exactly what he, it meant he it had to do with wood going, growing up someplace where, you know, it'd come out your ears, okay? That's how long you'd sit there. And uh, I became all about doing the right thing. I was sober five years. And I brought a partner in who was, he weighed about 280 pounds of solid muscle. Grew up in the watermelon fields in Immokalee. And uh, all of a sudden, it turned into a big competition that went on for years over who runs the show here. He wanted to run the show, and I wanted to run the show. And it seems like, you know, slowly over a period of time, all that sobriety that I'd worked five years for all that spirituality that I thought I had, you know, because I, I thought I was a, you know, I thought I was some kind of spiritual guru, okay? You see, this isn't the first time I've seen this. I first saw this, what's behind me, 35, 36 years ago. When a woman came up to me in the central house, and she told me, she said, God told me to give you this book because you're going to help so many people. And my head just swelled up. You know. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to help so many people. And that night we were at Denny's, me and Dennis sitting there. And I said, Dennis, you'll never believe this woman came up to me in the center house and she told me, Gave me this book because God told her to give it to me because I'm going to help so many people. And Dennis looked at me and he said, yeah, and the name of the book was A Course in Miracles. And I said, how'd you know that? I thought he had ESP or something. I mean, you know, I knew he was a guru, right? An AA guru. He said, because she told me the same thing. <laughs> that right sized me right down. He said, you know what, Tom? He said, I was just like you, you know. I, we, me and my buddy, you know, was, was back in Chicago, he says, and, you know, we were on this spiritual high, and, and we're looking at all kinds of religions, and, you know, we, we want more of this. And my buddy said, you know what, Dennis? Uh, my great-grandmother's full-blood Chippewa, up in Wisconsin, and we should go up there because she's 105 years old and she's the sage of the tribe. And 
they have big powwows. And so we did. We went up there. And we sat down, you know, at the, they had a big bonfire late at night. And they brought the old woman. And she sat down right by me. And she, she turned and stared right at me. And she said, I can tell my son that you, you're, you, you have an interest. What is, what is it that you're interested in? And he said, oh, ma'am, he says, uh, I'm interested, and we're interested in enlightenment. We want to be enlightened. And she said, ah, yes, enlightenment. Before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. He said, you know what, Tom? You're never going to be some guru sitting on the side of the mountain where life doesn't affect you. You're only human. And life is always going to affect you. It's, that's the way it is. You got emotions. Life's always going to affect you, and you don't have to run around all over the place looking for this spirituality because God will speak to you right out of the mouths of the people in AA. All you have to do is listen, and it'll come to you. I guess that's why he gave me two ears and only one mouth so I could listen more than talk. Yeah. And so, it got really bad. About 10 years sober, I'd stop sponsoring anybody. I'd stop the, uh, uh, I was still praying. I think that's the only thing that saved me. Is it because I, I never stopped praying. I, I shared last week how it was through prayer that, and how I came to believe is because I came to realize from asking God for the strength to stay clean and sober that my obsession to drink and to use had been removed. Sitting underneath a building, I'd been digging ditches. There was people here that weren't here last week. But I had been doing that for months, praying every morning, going to meetings, going to work, I was digging ditches for the plumbers underneath the building. I came out from under there, went down the street to get a sandwich in a 7-Eleven. was working on a job, Bradley Place, up in Palm Beach. And I came out of the 7-Eleven, I looked in the, in the car, and there was two other guys there. And they had, I, I, my eyes glued on the quarts of beer they had between their legs and the Frisbee, and they were cleaning the seeds. Out, out of the reefer, you know, rolling joints. That's where I used to be every day at lunchtime. That was my lunch. But see, I, I had changed some things. When I left the BA, they told me two things. They said, don't go home. Don't go home because, see, I had a mother that almost loved me to death. You understand that? My sister's sober 39 years. I took her to her first meeting, and then I went and got drunk. I, my mother was a nice woman. You know, very nice, respectable. She belonged to the Powder Puff Club, you know. They wore white gloves and drank tea. 
She was a very nice woman, and she used to come looking for me, and I drank in the worst places in town. She had no business being in those places. And I'd see her coming sometimes down the, you know, down the sidewalk, out the window. I'd run and hide in the bathroom, and, they'd, and she'd come in there, and she'd say, I know he's in here, and I know you all got drugs in your pockets, and if you don't get him out of here, I'll have the cops in here, you know. She was a tough gal. And she'd take me home, and I'd cry and carry on all about how sorry I was and how sad I was, and I was never going to do it again. And as soon as her back was turned, I'd be gone. I'd be gone. I was gone a couple of years, and I'm out on the road hitchhiking. I'm up on I-10 in Louisiana. I came off of the freeway, and there's another bum sitting there. He had a bottle of wine. I had some reefer. We got together. I said, where are you going? He says, I'm just out on the road. I says, you want to go to Key West? And party down there. And besides, my mother lives down there in Pompano, you know. She'll put us up, right? <laughs> you, know the, you know the answer to this already. So I, I get to the, to the door. You know, I got a beard down here and hair down here. I knock on the door. I'll never forget as long as I live. My mother opened the door, looked right in my face, and said, can I help you? <laughs> I said, Ma, it's me. Oh, my God, what have you done? You? And who's this bum? I said, that's my buddy. He One night, that's it. One night. She didn't want to hear what they told her in Al-Anon. That you need to get them, throw them kids out. Stop enabling them all the time. She told them, those are my children. Not going to let my children go. It's going to save us. That's who took me to the VA. That's whose money I stole from her purse because we had to stay in a motel the night before the last time I, hopefully, God, please, the last time I hope I ever drink again. It's a good thing she didn't have too much money or I'd have gone in a blackout. I could have ended up in Timbuktu or somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, this is the kind of things we do. What we put our families through and stuff. I don't know. Uh, but they said, don't don't go home. Don't go home. I had no money. What was I supposed to do? I had to go home, at least until I could get some money. And they said, don't work construction. Because those guys in construction are all a bunch of drunks and drug addicts. What was I going to do? This is all I'd done my whole life, except for a little bit of time I was in the Army. Well, they threw me out for being a heroin addict. That's all I knew. And so uh, I did go home. I didn't stay long, just long enough to, you know, get a place. Because I knew my mother was trouble. She always was. I got a place by myself, and, and I had no license. They took that from me. And so I, had, I used to have to go a couple of blocks to do my laundry in the laundromat. And I put the laundry in the, in the cart, and she saw me one day. Oh, she pulled over. She was crying. Come to my house. I'll do your laundry. I said, no, no, not doing that. 
Not doing that. I got to learn to stand on my own. Not doing that. You know, and uh, God bless her. She was. She never did get it, I tell you. But I don't want to get off on that. I start thinking about her. You know, uh, I didn't sit down with the guys. I, I mean, I, I didn't mess around with the people that I used to mess around with, sit with them around back where nobody could see us and they could break out their half pints and stuff, you know, and smoke their joints. I didn't do that. I even would tell them, you know, if I got up in a room somewhere where we were scraping the floors or something and some guy would pull a joint out, I'd say, yeah, put that out. So we talk about. I'm not working in here with you if you're doing that. What do you mean you're not? I says, I'll tell you what, go ahead. I said, I'll go down and I'll start working someplace else. And when the foreman comes and wants to know why I'm someplace else, I'm going to tell him because you're smoking dope in there. You rat. You know, you know how many times that almost started a fight? But I had to stand up for, the, for, for this. I had to stand up for it. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, go along with that anymore. I had to start sitting down with the old guys that brought their lunch. I never brought my lunch to the job all the years. I'm 32, at the time, 32 years old. I never brought my lunch to the job. That's what I always did. My own brother worked the job with me. I had to tell him, you know, oh, why don't you come with us? We're going over the beach. Look at the girls. I know they're not going to the beach to look at the girls. They're going to the beach to get drunk and smoke dope. That's what they're going to the beach for. So I, 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 I stopped associating with my own brother. I had to let go of all those things that I once did. I learned detachment early on in sobriety. I had to detach from the things that, and then what happened? I forgot all about it. It all started to wear away. Why? Because I was materialistic. Because I lost my spirituality. I became all about money, power, and prestige. All about who's going to run the show here. How, you're not going to run the show. I brought you here. You wouldn't even be here if you weren't for me. And we fought and argued constantly. And one day, he said, <laughs> I'll never forget it. He's gone now. The poor guy passed away from liver cancer. He said, he said, and he's, believe me now, this guy's 280 pounds. I mean, he's solid muscle. He used to be old-time leg breaker for us. His favorite saying was, I'll Pearl Harbor that guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, he wait in the dark. <laughs> he put you in the hospital, and you won't even know who did it. Or how you got there. You'll just come to in there. He says, I'll hurt you so bad, you'll never walk again. And I went in my office and got my forty-five out of the desk and came out and put a bullet in the wall next to his head. And all 280 pounds of him fell to the floor. Of course, I had to carry a forty-five from then on, you know. <laughs> 
And it drove me insane. Okay, just the stress of all that just drove me insane. And what happened? I'll tell you what happened. I mean, I was so obsessed. See, because that's what happens. You know, I was lucky I didn't lose my sobriety, but I lost my spirituality 10 years sober. 10 years sober. I lost my spirituality. And it was driving me just insane, you know, and I was a mess, emotionally a mess. I had a wife and kids and house and mortgage and I had all these things that that's all I thought about all day long. But I wake up every morning, you know, thinking about everything I got to do, everything I got to have, you know, I got to make everything happen. I can't, I can't, I can't uh, uh, let anything go. And I was in New Orleans. And I'm going to tell you something. God works through people. God does speak to you through the mouths of people. And don't look funny at them. Because you never know who it might be. That carries that message to you. That God uses. I'm in New Orleans at a union conference. And I'm walking around Jackson Square. If anybody's familiar with Jackson Square in New Orleans, there's lots of artists and fortune tellers around there. And I am just wasting time, right? And this stuff all in my head driving me crazy. And this big, heavy-set guy, he's got on sequins robe and a sequins turban and stuff, you know. 20 bucks is going to tell my fortune. I figure, okay, what the hell? I give him the twenty dollars, and he first he turns over all the tarot cards, and he's looking at my palm. Hand to God, I don't tell him nothing. He starts telling me everything, not in particular, but in general terms. Okay, everything I'm going through. He says your your problem is you're stuck in this place, and. You could leave it, but you see, you need to go through this door, and it's totally black on the other side of that door. You can't see what's on the other side of that door, but you need to step through it. Because it won't be over until you do. And when I got up from him and I walked away, It was like clear as a bell. I was the problem. My ego was the problem. I wouldn't let go of my pride. Because I still had the defects of character that I've always had. And the biggest defect of character I had was self-condemnation. And the second was false pride to make up for that. I am the egomaniac with the inferiority complex. And I'd cop nothing but resentment about it my whole life. And it was all tied up in my ego. And I wouldn't surrender. It doesn't matter how many years you got. If you lose your spirituality, you'll find yourself in the same place. 
because you've allowed your ego to take back over again and tell you what you need. But you think this is what you need. And I knew then what I needed was just to walk away. Just walk away. Let it all go. Just let it all go and walk away. You win, okay? I surrender. You win. You can have it. It's yours. Because if I don't do this, one of us is going to die. And one of us is going to the penitentiary for life. That's where I knew it was headed. And I walked back to the hotel, the Lowe's. We're at the Lowe's right across from Paris. And I walked inside, and the big boss was standing there. And I went to the big boss, and I said, I need to talk to you. He said, okay, let's have lunch. He took me in, and we had lunch, and I said, I said, you know, one of us is going is, is gonna to end up dead. He said, yeah, I know. I know how bad it is. You know, he's in Nashville, but he knows, believe me. He's got spies everywhere. I says, well, I'll go back to the field. He can have it. I'll go back working with my hands. And he said, uh, no, I don't want you to do that. He said, you know, you're always good with training and training guys. I'm, I, I, I'll tell you what. You resign your office. And I'll put you to work for the training guy in, in Atlanta. I said, okay. I always like training guys. You know, I like talking, as you can tell. I could stand up in front of a class and teach my trade all day long, day in and day out. And that's really what this is, you know. This is my trade. This is my real job. This is what this book, this is what this book taught me about the third step. That I had a new boss. A new employer. That I'm his agent. I was once a business agent for the union, but an agent I'm really for is for God. I'm an agent for God. I work for him. That other stuff just pays me so I can do this job. That's all it does. And uh, I worked for him, and I worked all around the South, you know, traveling all the time. And my friend, who was president of the local, he works in the field, he's a foreman in the field. He just holds the office of president. President and Secretary Treasurer, they are both financially responsible. He said, man, you got to come back and take back over this. He said, I, I leave the club at night and I go by the union hall and, and, and he's, he's making a mess of this place. Him and his wife are in there and they've got the books spread all over the place and I'm afraid I'm going to go to prison. And, and I said, man, you better call the big boss in Nashville, because I'm okay. I'd gotten my spirituality back. I'd, I'd see, be, all because I'd let go, because I walked away from it. And I don't have anything to do with it anymore. And then I was in Atlanta, and I had to go to 
Knoxville, and the big boss, he called me from Nashville, and he said, on your way to Knoxville, come by Nashville. I said, that ain't on the way to Knoxville. He said, I don't care. Come to Knoxville. I said, okay. I went up there and sat across the desk from him, and he said, that guy's making a mess of that place, and I want you to go back and take it over. And I said, oh, no, I ain't going back there. I'm happy. He said, I'm going to promote him. <laughs> up out of there. And you'll take it over by yourself. And I said, okay. And that's what I did. I went back and I worked it alone. And I brought it along. I had nothing left. I had 24 grand left in the bank. Within four years of working it by myself, you know, I was up to about 350 grand and back up to about 350, 400 members. And the big boss said, you did so well with that. I'm going to give you this whole outfit. And he gave me that, 537 members, with an opportunity to raise that up to 1,200. And that's what I did in a year, raised it up to 1,100. He said, you know what, you did so good with that, I'm going to put everything together and make you the boss over that. And that's what he did. And he worked me up. Now he, he, he put me with the, with the International Union and made me a representative, which bumped my pension up. And everything came to me. But it didn't come to me because I was fighting, trying to make it happen. It's because I let it go and let it happen. The material never precedes the spiritual. If you think, you know, that that's all you need, and I talked about that last week, I thought that all I ever needed was to get everything I wanted. That what I had was a big hole in my soul. And all I ever did was stuff, stuff, stuff in that in a hole, trying to fill it. And what I had to learn is that hole can't be filled, but it can be healed. And only God makes that possible. Only God makes that possible. And before we, I, I promised, this is the way I usually start. This, this is the way I do things, right? I'm crazy. I get all this stuff. I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, I end up doing none of it. And just talking, you know, so maybe I think that I'm not good enough still. I don't know. But I, one of my friends here, you know, one of the guys that helps with this, he asked me about it. I said, oh, we're going to talk about that tonight. So I want to make sure that, that I, I don't let it go. This is Father John Doe. He was old time guy back in the 40s, wrote the golden books, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Let me first, uh, let, me say, let me say this, because I knew I was going to say this, right? I knew I was going to say this. You know, uh, we look in the, in the, well, I don't know where it is, but it, it, it talks in here in the big book about seeing where, uh, where religious people are right. Of course, I, I, lost, I lost my place. And it talks about other books. Tells you, you know, get them from your rabbi, get them from your priest. Don't look down your nose at religious people. Look to see where they're right, not where they're wrong. 
It doesn't say any place in this big book, only read AA, conference-approved literature. doesn't say that. So don't let people tell you that, okay? Because all that means is that this literature was approved by a committee of general service for general service to print. Doesn't mean don't read any other, but I guess, uh, what did they tell you? Don't read the Bible? Right? This book is written from that. From Sermon on the Mount, Corinthians 1.13, and the book of James. That's where this book comes from. I'm sure that I'll get several people to agree with that. In general, we find three classes of AAs, three overall attitudes, which in turn give us the good, the bad, and the indifferent AA. In the first of these classes, we have the members who have acquired a completely spiritual attitude toward the program. They have become convinced of the primacy of the spiritual, and all of their AA activity and their entire lives are regulated and directed by spiritual values. To them, material prosperity, etc., are only secondary and ever dependent upon the will of God which to them has become their unfailing roadmap. They never slip. They are the ones who display in their every action, in their countenances, in their every word, peace, contentment, and serenity. They are the ones who are always doing much, yet unseen. They are the ones who have fully experienced the expulsion of the compulsion to drink. To them, liquor is no longer a problem, no longer a temptation, no longer even a matter of much thought. They are the truly spiritual men and the spiritual women. And far from being morose, apart, and alone, they are the very backbone of every AA group. They are the ones who have acquired a completely spiritual attitude. The second class of AAs are the indifferent ones. They are the ones who have a half-and-half point of view a partly spiritual, partly material attitude. They're the ones who have a spiritual attitude in some phases of AA and their lives, but who still in many things put material values above the ultimate spiritual values. They are the victims again and again of that time-worn rationalization, you got to be practical. They have never really taken the time to think through the ultimate road and often turn off because the pavement looks very smooth. They're often victims of the squirrel cage. <laughs> Drink cravings, resentments, etc. Because they are more or less often determinately seeking material advancements and ending in conflict. Many slip, many stay sober. But all of these will never know the meaning of serenity. Fortunately, many ultimately acquire the spiritual attitude and come to realize the primacy of the spiritual, the hard way. They are the bulk of AAs, the bulk. In the third class, we find the AA members, which is what I used to be for years, if they can be called such, who have a completely material attitude. They are the no-God individuals, the no-spiritual-angle boys and girls, the first-step Johns. Their only problem is drinking, right? They have come to the point of being convinced that they are alcoholic but not unmanageable. 
They know liquor has them whipped and how they hate it. The being whipped, not the liquor. Their every striving and longing and determination is for material advancement, material pleasure, material well-being. And with all they expect to stay sober, they don't. Even their weeks or months or even in odd cases, their years. I know a man had 34 of sobriety are a constant struggle against a drink. They are the dry drunks, dry and very unhappy. But ultimately, the first drink comes along and they slip. A few come back, not only sobered, but finally convinced of the primacy of the spiritual. Many of them slip and never come back. We would like to say that in reality, they had never came in what they really had. Thanks for letting me share tonight. And now we'll have Mark come up and do our secretary support. Hi, mate. You good? Hi, my name is Mark, and I am your recovered alcoholic secretary. Keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are going around. While the baskets are going around, I have asked Ian to come up here and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. So here's Ian. I'm Ian. I'm a a recovered alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we are cured, we must be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Page 23. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you, Ian. 1940-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of AA. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Can I please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? Cool. How about, does anyone in the room need a sponsor? We have one. Would you just stand up and announce your name real quick so everyone could see you? We have Parker. He needs a sponsor. Welcome, Parker. Please join us Monday nights, the Big Book Study Meeting. It's right on this stage where the Big Book comes alive. Fellowship starts at 6.30. The meeting starts at 7.15. Also up on this piano here, we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red, bi- little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. Again, we meet usually downstairs at 715, but every week regardless at this church. 
we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of bells slash road to recovery theme song. See you next week. All right. Um, I'd also like to invite everybody to the Monday Night Big Book Study. And those who wish to thank the, tonight's speaker, please line up down the center aisle. And now let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Now, growing vines, they twist 
and turn each way Flowers blooming all the time And that's at my door Never before I had to change everything To realize That today is the best day of my life Cause this broken God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Just won't set me free. Well, clap your hands if you leave me, too. 